Let me start with an observation about my own life. Uh, one of the great ironies uh, of being a public leader is that I have sometimes felt lonely. It's a very bizarre thing to me. And I know as even I talk about this out loud, it seems absolutely ridiculous. Uh, I am always around people. I am never alone. I'm constantly in a group, in a crowd, uh, uh, with a team working. I'm never alone, and yet sometimes I feel lonely. I'm not sure I can explain it any further than that. I'm just letting you know that's how I sometimes feel. I'm not sure if my feelings are justifiable. I'm not sure my feelings are even valid. I may be crazy. Yeah, takes one to know one. I am rubber, you are glue, and all of those things. Uh, So, uh, surrounded by people, it's a strange thing, being a leader, uh, I feel lonely, and no, it doesn't make sense to me. So I don't, you say, well, why are you confusing us? I'm just sharing my confusion with you, that's all. Uh, because the story today is about relational disputes, and I know that all of us sometimes have feelings that are not based in reality. Sometimes you feel someone doesn't like you, and they love you. Sometimes you feel like your parents don't love you, they'd take a bullet for you. Sometimes you feel like everybody's out to get you, they're not. Sometimes you feel... Some, sometimes your feelings are not based in reality. And I'm not accusing you, I'm saying I'm one of you. I, I get it. I, I understand what that is. But sometimes our feelings are based in reality. And part of the dilemma of being a human being, you feel the way you feel, and it's hard to argue with the way somebody feels. Matter of fact, if you come to my office and say, Pastor, I don't feel loved, I won't try to argue out of it because there's no way to argue with your feelings. Instead, we'll just love you, okay? So, uh, I I want you to wrestle with that because you are wired probably the same way. For example, let's just do a little assessment. Do you know for a fact that you are loved by God? Okay, sure, you know that. If the Bible says anything, it says that. It says it a whole lot of times. So the whole theme of the Bible and the greatest attribute of God. So let me ask you this then. How do you explain the fact that sometimes you feel that God doesn't love you? You all affirm you know God loves you, yet sometimes life goes a certain way and you're like, God, I don't know if you love me at all. If you loved me, I wouldn't be, fill in the blank, sick, unemployed, struggling, etc., I mean, we come at it a different way. We all know from the Word of God that obedience opens up for us the best life that we can live. And when we are obedient to God, it aligns us with the mission of God and the priorities of God in such a way that God can bless us in such a unique and powerful way. But here's the truth of the matter. Even though we know that obedience brings blessing, Yet often, you and I are disobedient to God. And when we're disobedient, and things don't go our way, who do we get mad at? God. Now, it doesn't make any sense, does it? 
No, because you just feel the way you feel, and sometimes you just think the way you think, and sometimes it's real, and sometimes it's not based in accurate, inaccurate facts. Here's the truth of the matter in relationships. Unrealized expectations in relationships will naturally lead to disputes with those we love. Uh, when you come to the staff and you say, hey, we, we're ready to get married, we're ready to take the next steps and, and to enter into covenant marriage together, uh, we'll recommend you go through a, a, a premarital counseling program with members of the church staff, whether that's with, with Pastor Erica or Pastor Jeremy or Pastor Erica or Pastor Erica or another Pastor Erica we have. Or, uh, we have a staff that's trained on uh, uh, Simba's pre-marriage counseling program. They're fantastic. It's, it's awesome. Um, one of the main things they'll talk to you about as you prepare for marriage in your premarital counseling classes is expectations. It's really the biggest lift in the whole thing. The main topic is both parties articulating what their expectations of marriage are because when expectations are not met, I thought he would fill the car with gas. I thought she would do the dishes. I thought he would pick his socks up off the bedroom floor. I thought she would hang the towels up on the hook in the bathroom. I thought, and on and on it goes, ad nauseum. When you have assumptions and expectations and they're not met, it leads to relational disputes. Now, let's just take it one step further. You say, well, how do we fix this? Well, the, the key to solving relational disputes is communication. And uh, you've got to talk it out. Now, if you understand what I've just articulated in that five minutes, you understand the book of Malachi. God is in a relationship with his people. Unrealized expectations are happening all over the place. On God's side and on the people's side. And so the whole book is about relational disputes and how they're going to solve them is they're going to talk them out. They're going to have some dialogue. They're going to have some discussion. And it comes through the prophet Malachi. And that sets the stage for what you're about to hear. For example, we know God loves Israel, right? I mean, that's what the whole Old Testament's been about. God wants a people. He's going to make a people. No people want to be his people. So he goes and gets Abraham and makes a whole new brand of people. His people. And uh, he puts his mark on them, and he puts his covenant on them, and he makes the covenant, and he reaffirms it with Abraham, with, with Isaac, with Jacob, with all of the descendants, with Moses, and again the people of Israel at Sinai, and then again they agree as they go into the promised land with Joshua. And, and this is the story. God wants a people. These people are special. He loves his people. They're very precious to him. But they fight. Israel doesn't meet God's expectations. Uh, God doesn't meet Israel's expectations. We'll talk about that here in just a minute. And now these two relational parties are in a dispute with each other. And it needs to be worked out. So they're going to talk it out through the mouth of the prophet Malachi. Now here's what I want you to remember as we get into this. You're not Old Testament people. You're God's new covenant people. But nonetheless, you're in a covenant relationship with God. And things that are being talked about relationally are very interesting for you to eavesdrop on. Because if you see how God dealt with Israel in a relationship, then you're going to understand how God's going to deal with you in the new covenant relationship as well. When you see how he has expectations, 
and you see how the people treated God, it's very uh, educational. It's very instructive for our present relationship and walk with God. All right, so now let's get to Malachi. Last book of the Old Testament. Malachi is speaking to the people of God, Israel, in the final scene of the Old Testament. There are no more scenes after the scene I'm painting today. Here is the scene. They've come out of the Babylonian captivity. So this is called the, pre, the post-exile period or synonymous, the second temple period because they're about to build the second temple. Solomon's temple was destroyed in the invasion. Seventy years they've been in captivity. Now God leads them back. He leads them back. I shouldn't have put my fingers up. In how many waves of immigration? How many waves of immigration? Three. And they come through Zerubbabel, Ezra, and Nehemiah. Those are the books of Ezra and Nehemiah. And those three lead three waves of immigration back to the promised land. And Ezra rebuilds the temple. And Nehemiah, or Zerubbabel and Ezra, but Zerubbabel rebuilds the temple. Nehemiah rebuilds the wall around the city. And now the city's up, worship has started. That whole process took about a hundred years. We've come to the final scene of the Old Testament. Israel, in Israel, the temple is built. God's presence doesn't show up in the temple like it did in Solomon's temple, nor will it show up all the way till the time until Jesus shows up. The next time the presence of God shows up in the temple of God will be when Jesus Christ shows up in the New Testament and physically steps into the temple and starts teaching the doctors and the lawyers or is presented as a baby at dedication. It's the next time God shows up in God's temple, okay? So we're in the last scene of the Old Testament. The people are not living up to God's expectations. They've tried to restart the Jewish society and the worship of God, but everything keeps falling flat. Nothing seems to change the hearts of the people. They go right back to idolatry. They go right back to old ways. It just isn't working out the way everybody wants it to work out. During the Ezra and Nehemiah period of time, Malachi is one of these prophets that steps into the scene. A voice of God, a spokesman for God. Remember this, the Old Testament prophets are covenant enforcers. That's their job. Their job is to step up to the microphone and say, tap, tap, tap. Ladies and gentlemen of Israel, have you forgotten you're in a covenant with God? He's going to scob your knob. He's going to clobber you, man, if you don't start doing right. And he's going to bless you if you start doing right. You agreed to these terms. Come on, man, get with it. That's what a covenant enforcer does. He enforces the covenant. Now, he does it vocally, verbally, okay? Consequently, Israel doesn't want to be rebuked by God, so they kill all the prophets, Okay? That's the story. Now you've got the whole Old Testament story recap. Let's get right to the book. The book of Malachi is structured around six disputes, six relational arguments. Okay? I'm going to show you the six disputes, and let's see who's talking in every dispute. The first dispute from the book of Malachi, he steps forward during this period, and he says, speaking for the people and for God, Here's what he says. Malachi 1, verse 2. I have loved you, says the Lord. All right, let me just stay with me here. This is not a trick. What does God say? 
I love you. But you ask, how have you loved us? Dispute number one, God doesn't love us. Now, it's easy for us to sit here and say, ooh, those wicked old Jews of the Old Testament. But let's be honest. Sometimes that's how we feel. Especially when you get sick. Especially when things don't break your way. Especially when the transmission dies and the washer dies and the kids get sick and you have bad test results. And then things start breaking against you a little bit economically. It's real easy for that old human sinful nature to pop up and say, well, I guess God doesn't really care about me that much after. I guess God really doesn't love me that much. So here's dispute number one. God says, I love you. <clears throat> the people say, how have you loved us? Was not Esau Jacob's brother, declares the Lord? Yet I have loved Jacob. Now, Jacob would be Israel, okay? Esau would be the country of Edom. So God's going to go on an answering spree here. The people are like, you know, God doesn't love us. God says, what are you talking about? I loved Abraham. I loved Isaac. I loved Jacob. Listen, you want to know what it's like when I don't love someone or when, I, when I'm adversarial with someone? That'd be Esau. So watch how God words this. Verse 3. Esau have I hated, and I have turned his hill country into a wasteland, and I have left his inheritance to the desert jackals. Edom, that's Esau's people, may say, though we've been crushed, we will rebuild. But this is what the Lord says. They may build, but I'm going to smash it like a bug. No, it's a paraphrase. But they will build, but I will crush it. I will demolish it. They will be called the wicked land, a people always under the wrath of the Lord. You say, why is God so mad at this other country? Because it's a country when given a choice, rejected God. They were given a choice to be in a covenant relationship with God. Esau was the firstborn. He was the covenant representative of the family. And Esau despised his birthright. He didn't give a rip for what it meant to be called God's people. Now, I'm going to tell you the danger. Let me talk to young people a minute. You come up, and you're young, and you're modern, and you're woke, and you're all of these things the world is now. And when you come up, and you think you're so hip and cool and smarter than all the adults who've ever lived in the history of the world, and suddenly you know so much and you don't give a rip for what it means to be called God's people. As soon as you can get out of the house, you're going to do whatever you want to do. That's Esau. That's, that's Esau. Now, Jacob was a scoundrel, but Jacob eventually said, you know what, God, I value what it means to be called your, your people. God, I want to enter into a covenant relationship with you. And I want you to know those are two different attitudes reflected by two different twin brothers, Jacob and Esau. One brother loved God and one brother rejected God. And consequently, God says, listen, you're descendants of this Jacob. I love Jacob. And I've demonstrated my love to Jacob for hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years to bring you to this present hour here in Israel. You say, well, what, is it, what does it matter? God doesn't love us. No, go look at Edom over there. Edom is the country that, that is hostile against me. And they can't even build a nation. They're backward. They're, 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 they're going nowhere but the Stone Age. Because I will not let them succeed. Because they are adversarial with me. If they try to build, I'll just crush it. 
I've never done that with my people. I've always tried to help you live and thrive and be a shining light to the world of what it means to be God's living images. I have showed you my love with specific actions. Now, the context of the first dispute is what it means to be loved by God. God loves His covenant people. Now, God loves people, but God loves His covenant people in very special ways. Now, when the Bible talks about love, love is not something you feel in the Bible. You may say, well, I feel like I love you. Love in the Bible is an action word. Love in the Bible is something that's being expressed through uh, tangible uh, actions. Somebody is showing you love through provision, through protection, through care, through compassion, through, through encouragement. Somebody is loving you. It's very much a verb uh, not, not a feeling, not a noun in the Bible. And so God says, wait, you feel like you're not loved? Are you kidding me? I'm a God of action, and I'll, I have acted for you over and over. I've expressed my love as actions. I delivered you from Babylon. I restored you into the land. I gave you an open checkbook, and the king of Babylon paid for all of this temple and this wall. I have done all of that for you. I have protected you. I have made sure that you succeeded and that a remnant remained and that the nation survived. I have done all of this for you. So the answer to your question is, well, God doesn't love it. Where, where, how have you showed you? God said, I've showed you my love consistently. With actions, I have demonstrated my love for you. Now, let me ask you to self-assess. Do you sometimes feel like God doesn't love you? God's response to you is this, I do love you, you are my treasured possession, you are my treasured people, I love you consistently, totally, eternally, and I have demonstrated my love to you. Let me read from the New Testament very quickly, in John chapter 13, Jesus is getting ready for the end, he goes up to the Passover Jesus knew that the hour had come for him to leave the world and go to his Father. The Scripture says, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them. You say, God, I sometimes feel like you don't love me. Here's God's response. I loved you all the way to the cross. I loved you all the way into the tomb and back out the other side. Let me tell you how much I loved you. I loved you all the way to the nails being driven in my hand. I loved you all the way to the moment I cried. It's finished. Salvation has been paid for. I loved you all the way. You say all the way to where? All the way to whatever it takes. I have demonstrated my love for you. Sometimes we feel like God doesn't love us. Let me tell you what the Bible says. 1 John chapter 4, verse 7. Mom, maybe you can teach about this next year sometime a little deeper. Dear friends, let us love one another for love comes from where? Yeah, love comes from God. Everyone who loves has been born of God and knows God. Whoever does not love does not know God. Because God is what? I mean, it's the very powerful primary attribute of who God is. God is love. This is how God showed his love among us oh we're getting to the answer of the question now aren't we god I don't feel like you love me god why don't you show me you love me this is how 
God showed that He loved us. He sent His one and only Son into the world that we might live through Him. This is love. Not that we loved God, but that He loved us and sent His Son to be the atoning sacrifice for our sins. Dear friends, since God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. No one has ever seen God, but if we love one another, God lives in us. This world's never seen God with their eyes. You get the picture that's being painted here? How in the world can this world see God existing? The world's not seen God, but if we love one another, God lives in us and His love is made complete in us. This is how we know that we live in Him and He lives in us. He has given us His Spirit through tangible actions. (laughs) He's given you something. So I just want to challenge your feelings this morning and my feelings When we get to those moments in our relation with God where we have some dispute, say, God, I don't feel like you love me. God says, wait, I've showed you. I am showing you. And the fact that you can hear the voice of my Holy Spirit in your heart proves that I have given and given and even given of my very presence to take up residence in your your heart. And here's what I would challenge you to do this morning. I would challenge you this morning to find a place of prayer at the end of this service and say, dear God, I do know you love me. Of course I know that. I've heard the Scripture this morning. I've known it all my life. You show your love to me in so many different ways. So God, here's my prayer today. Help me to align my feelings to what I know to be true. God, bring my feelings in line with what I know to be true. God, I know you love me, and I just want to thank you for loving me. Thank you for being patient with my misplaced feelings sometimes. And thank you that I can talk it out with you Because we are in a relationship. That's dispute number one. And that's how it played out. Here's dispute number two. God's people dishonor him. Malachi 1.6. A son honors his father and a slave his master. God speaking. If I am a father, where is the honor due me? If I am a master, where is the respect due to me? Says the Lord Almighty. It is you priests, now he directs this directly to the priesthood, it's you priests who show contempt for my name. But you ask, what did we do? We we don't know what you're talking about. We don't despise you. God says you, you dishonor me. You despise me. The people say, no, we don't dishonor you. We don't despise you. But you ask, how have we shown contempt for your name? Watch God's answer in verse 7. Here's how you show that you dishonor me verse 7 by offering defiled food on my altar but you ask how have we defiled you here's how by saying that the lord's table is contemptible when you offer blind animals for sacrifice is that not wrong when you sacrifice lame and diseased animals is that not wrong Try offering them to your governor. 
Would He be pleased with you? Would He accept you? Says the Lord Almighty. You say, what in the world's happening? Here's what's happening. The people were required as a part of worship to bring animal sacrifices. Okay? You all know that, right? From the Old Testament. They were supposed to bring certain type of animal sacrifices. And the animal sacrifices were supposed to be without blemish. They were supposed to be the very best they had from the flock. Does everybody know that too? In other words, when you went out and looked at the lambs, you're like, I have to pick the very best and give it to God. Okay? Instead, they went out and looked at the flock and said, Hey, Garrett, grab that three-legged one over there, and that crippled one, and that blind one, and that stupid one, and that one that keeps falling in the well. Get those. We're going to offer those as sacrifices, and we'll clean up the genetics of our herd by calling out the unwanted animals. That one, that one that's puking all the time over there, get that one. We're going to go offer that to the Lord. God says, why do you dishonor me? Why do you despise me? I mean, if I'm your Lord, if I'm your master, don't you think I deserve some respect? You call me God the Father. Doesn't a father get some respect from his children? You're like, what did we do? He said, really, you want to play that game? What did we do? Here's what you did. You're offering all of these sick and diseased animals on my altar, and you're giving them as an offering. Why are you giving me the rejects? Why are you giving me that which you don't want? Let's read a little bit further. This is, this is great. Like, it's like a telenovela here. Verse 13. And you say, oh, what a burden. What a burden to do this for God. What, you, you sniff at it contemptuously, says the Lord Almighty. When you bring injured, lame, or diseased animals and offer them as sacrifices, shouldn't I accept them from your hands? I mean, honestly, should I even take this junk from you? What should I do, says the Lord? Cursed is the cheat who has an acceptable male in his flock and vows to give it, but then offers and sacrifices the blemished animal to the Lord, for I am a great king. That's the way God talks, in case you didn't know that. Maybe you thought God just said, you know, love, love, love. Sometimes the other side of the nature of God is like this. And God talks like this. Am I not a great king? Don't give me your junk. Let me tell you a story. Once upon a time, my dad was a pastor for about 30 years. I remember as a child, someone called up to our house one day. Uh, and uh, I know the story because my dad was so angry, he was fuming and rehearsed it for the whole family. Uh, someone called up to our home and said, Hey, pastor, it's so-and-so from the church. Listen, we've got this, this gymongous ancient piano that doesn't work and it's out of tune and it's just a giant eyesore in our house. We want to give it to the church. You remember this, Mom? And my dad was quiet for a few minutes while he was listening. And then my dad kindly said to the dear church member, if it means nothing to you, it means nothing to God. Just throw it in the trash. So let me just say this to you the best way I can. God felt disrespected when his people offered him defiled sacrifices. Can we all agree to that? That's what the scripture is saying. I want to say it in a very personal way. It hurt God. It hurt God's feelings. God has feelings, by the way. 
it hurt God that the attitude of his people was to give God the least costly, least valuable, least dear, least worst they could give him rather than the best. That hurt God's feelings. So I want to, nothing else, get this principle before you go home today. If what you give has no value to you, then it has no value to God. It's a great principle for our giving. If it has no value to you, then it has no value to God. You say, well, I, I give $5, you know, at least twice a year. If you don't miss it, then God doesn't value it. it it's just, it doesn't, it doesn't mean anything. Um, you get up above 10%, 15%, 20% of your annual income giving, you'll start feeling it. All right, it means something now. It means something. <laughs> it means something. Uh, it's not just about money. It's not just about money. Listen, it, but it is about money. If you want to live in prosperity, how can you prosper if you have no respect for God? I mean, this is what he's disputing with Israel about. Brenna, you grew up tithing since you were babysitting, I'm assuming. Uh, Laura, are you somewhere in the room? Yeah, I see you hiding on the back row. Boy, you've backslid in like 20 rows. Uh, <laughs> Laura grew up tithing. Leslie, you in the room somewhere? Huh? Oh, oh gosh, the whole family back said. <laughs> you guys grew up tithing since you were earning money, babysitting, or whatever. I know you did, because I know how you guys grew up. But here's my question I want to ask you guys who grew up this way. Hasn't God taken care of you? Aren't you living in a nice house on the nicest side of town? And aren't your kids going to the best schools? And aren't you driving a good car? And could you even jam three more things in your closet? And isn't your pantry full? You see what I'm saying? And you say, well, I'm, I'm just smart and I've really worked hard. That's true too. You are all smart and you have worked hard. But don't discount the biggest factor in your life, God Almighty. Because you can be smart and you can work hard and you can still have a miserable life. And you're blessed... And not you, with husbands and wives and children. We'll get there. We'll get there. Don't worry. I'm just saying, you know, sometimes we feel a certain way and we are prone to depression, some of you. Listen, sometimes you just got to sit back and take assessment of the real situation here. You're living the dream, man. God has just really taken care of you. And God says, now listen, I want your best. This is the kind of relationship we have. I'm going to give you my best. As a matter of fact, if you could explain what Christmas is outside of this, I don't know what you would say. Isn't Christmas God giving his best to you? For God so loved the world, he gave himself. He gave his only begotten son as a sacrifice for your wickedness. That's how much God loved you. And if God would not hold Jesus Christ from you, would he withhold any blessing from you? He says, I'm giving you my best. That's what I want from you. But it's not just about money. It's also about your life. Don't say, when I get old, then I'll give God my final years. No, you won't. You'll die before you ever get to serve God. Listen, I've been pastoring a long time. 
And I just could name the name. I just watched people do it year after year after year. There's going to be a time when I'm going to serve God at somewhere down the road. And then they, they, they get middle-aged, boom. And where are they? It's, it, it, they don't. And that's why also that I'm so excited when I see the real old people in our church. Like Rick Wortley and <laughs> Fred Ng and some of you real old people. Uh, Michael Guevara. Really working hard in these years. For the Lord. Listen, that's an inspiration. In just a few days, you're going to get an email saying they're going to go to an, an annual work day, uh, 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 sorry, a monthly work day up here, volunteer day. You guys lead the way on that. God's, it's not just about money, it's about giving something that costs you, something special, something you can dedicate to God. Don't say, I'll give God my old years. Listen, why not give God your youth? Why not give God your young years, your vibrant years? Why not give God the years when you're energetic and your body doesn't creak? And Why not give God your, 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 your excitement? Why not give God... Listen, you, some of you have reached you know, 40. You're about as smart as you're going to get now. Why not give God those years? You finally got smart, know what life's about. You've lived a little bit. You've got some experience, you know. Give God the best of your life. All right, here's dispute number three. I've got to really step it up here. Dispute three is this. You've been unfaithful to God and you've been unfaithful to your spouse. Well, now that's something to talk about, isn't it? Let me see if I can sum it up. God addresses idolatry in the community and divorce. Okay? Let me read Malachi 2.10. Do we not all have one father? Did not God create us? Why do we profane the covenant of our ancestors by being unfaithful to one another? In other words, in this Christian community, this covenant community, we ought to treat each other with love and respect. Can we all agree on that? Why would we hurt each other? And yet I see so many churches being ripped apart by the very members of the church, biting and devouring one another and hurting one another and being malicious to one another. God says, no, 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 no. You're being unfaithful to one another. That's what we're talking about. Here, verse 11, Judah has been unfaithful. A detestable thing has been committed in Israel and in Jerusalem. Here it is. Judah has desecrated the sanctuary of the Lord, the sanctuary the Lord loves, sorry, by marrying women who worship a foreign god. Now, I've got to explain a little bit what's happening in the text. We're all the way back to Ezra and Nehemiah again. They were leaving their wives, no contest divorce. I'm tired of you. My, I'm a Jew. I've got a Jewish wife. I married her when we were both young. It's the wife of my youth. And now that I'm middle-aged, I'm seeing these young, hot idol worshipers here in the Middle East. Now that I'm back in the Middle East. And so I ditch my old ball and chain. And I hook up with a new, younger version who's an idol worshiper. And it's edgy. And it's gritty. And, 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 and it's everything my proper loving, wonderful wife is not. This is what's lighting God's fire right now. God said, you've abandoned your wife and you've grabbed an idol worshiper and now you're going to draw your whole family and your children away from God and in the next few generations we'll be right back to where we were pre-exile. This is why I took you into the captivity for this very thing. You all went after idols generationally after you intermarried into this mess. Verse 12, as for the man who does this, whoever he may be, 
May the Lord remove him from the tents of Jacob, even though he brings an offering to the Lord Almighty. Just because you're going through the motions of worship doesn't mean I'm going to overlook this. Another thing you do, verse 13, you flood the Lord's altar with tears. You weep and you wail because he no longer looks with favor on your offerings or accepts them. Verse 14, you ask, why? Why won't the Lord accept my offerings? It is because the Lord is witness between you and the wife of your youth. You have been unfaithful to her, and she is your partner. She is the wife of your marriage covenant. Has not the one God made you? You belong to him in body and spirit. And what does the one God seek? Godly offspring. So, be on your guard. Do not be unfaithful to the wife of your youth. The man who hates and divorces his wife. Now, the reason it's worded this way in the old world is because the woman couldn't divorce the man. She didn't have any rights. So it was always the man initiating the... It's always the man getting rid of her. It's not vice versa. So I just want you to have a contextual moment here. The man who hates and divorces his wife, says the Lord, does violence to the one he's supposed to protect. What's a very interesting take on divorce, isn't it? God said, when you ditch her for a younger model, you're hurting someone you vowed to protect with your life. You have broken your covenant, and you're dishonoring her, you're dishonoring yourself, and you're dishonoring God. Do not be unfaithful. Now let me just summarize this whole dispute this way. On top of God's hot list of issues is idolatry. So when the people turn to idolatry, God's going off like the space shuttle, okay? Every time. He, God's going to have something to say about that. It's his hottest hot button. And then his second hot button is tied to that idolatry. It's the way they just could casually divorce a partner they were supposed to love and protect and they made vows to. And God said, you're taking that lightly and you're just dismissing her. She's the wife of your youth and you get pledged your life to care for her and you're just tossing her into the street so that you can go after these idolatrous women. God said that hurts her and it hurts me and it hurts the entire covenant community of Israel. And I think that's still a prevalent issue. I think the divorce rate in the modern church in America is about the same as is in the unsaved world. So it just is what it is, but God's community needs to do better. I want to say this to you if you're on your second, third, fourth, or fifth marriage. Let's stop there. If at all possible, let's stop there, okay? If you're on number two, number three, number four, or number five, let's say we're going to make it work this time, okay? And let's give it everything we've got, and let's don't easily break the covenant that God has put you in If you're on number one, let's say the same thing, okay? I don't want to imply otherwise. If you're on number one, I'm just not trying to dismiss those of you who are on number two or three or four or five. You got here all by different routes. A woman, can you say, well, why are you saying number five? Because we had had a woman come to me not maybe about a year ago and say, I want to join the church, but I'm on marriage number five. I said, lady, you're not even in the running. We have people way further than you are. So just come on in and serve God and say, number five is where I'm at. Let's go forward, okay? So I just want to say to everybody, God, your marriage matters to God. How about that? How you treat your kids and kids, how you treat your parents and how we treat the community, it matters to God. And it's the source of a dispute 
with God. You've been unfaithful to God. You've been unfaithful to those you made vows to. God said, get that cleaned up. I, I, I'm serious about that. And it means something to me, and it means something to the way I can relate to you. It's dispute number four. The people said, God has neglected us. They said, where is the God of justice? There's no justice. Things are not fair. Why isn't God fixing this mess? Let me just read quickly. Malachi 2.17. You have wearied the Lord with your words. They say, how have we wearied him? By saying, all who do evil are good in the eyes of the Lord and he is pleased with them. Where is the God of justice? The people are saying society is in a mess. Everything's upside down. When will God fix all of this mess? If there is a God and he is God, why doesn't he fix the brokenness of the world. That's their dispute. So God responds. There's only one way to fix the mess the world is in, and I'm in the process of fixing it. But there's only one way to fix it. You think God just... and fix, It's not like that. He is fixing it, but He chose to fix it in a certain way in order to fix the world He has to deal with the problem in the world, and the problem in the world is sin and the human heart. It's not a quick fix, it's a long game. So God says, I'm going to fix it, I'm going to deal with the sin problem, and I'm going to deal with the human heart problem, and here's how I'm going to deal with it. Malachi 3, one of the most important verses in this book. I will send my messenger, and he will prepare the way before me. Then... Suddenly, the Lord you are seeking. Where is the Lord? Why doesn't He fix this mess? Then the Lord you are seeking will suddenly come to His temple. The messenger of the covenant whom you desire will come, says the Lord God Almighty. God said, I hear you and I know what you're saying, but I want you to know I am on the job. I am on this and I'm going to fix it, but it takes time. Some things have to be put in place. I can't just wave a magic wand. And do this the way it needs to be done. You've got a sin problem. You've got a heart problem. And I have to deal with that. And I have to deal with it in a very specific way. So God's answer to injustice is, I'm going to send a new king and he's going to fix this mess. I will send him. Be patient. Dispute number five. How Dispute number five is, that's four. Give me five. Dispute number five is, turn back to God. Okay, and the people say, how shall we turn back to God? What does that look like? Watch this, Malachi 3, 7. Ever since the time of your ancestors, you have turned away from my decrees and have not kept them. Return to me, and I will return to you. Let me just say something right here in the text. You may think, man, I want to try to get back into a good relationship with God, but it's a long journey and it's a hard journey and it's going to be, I don't know how to do that. Take one step toward God and he'll come to meet you. This is the Bible truth. Remember that prodigal son who came home in the New Testament? And he said, I'm going to go back to the Father. It's a long journey. It's a hard journey. I'm barefooted. I'm in rags. I'm dirty. I'm broke. I'm humiliated. But when the Father saw the Son coming, he lit off and he ran. And he met the Son and he hugged his neck. Such a beautiful picture of how God deals with us. The Bible says he is never far from any of us if we would happily feel after him. Listen, you make a move in God's direction however you can do that. Prayer, repentance, change of actions, change of attitudes. You make a move towards God. Watch God run to meet you. 
It's not a long journey that take years to get back. It takes one step towards God and God will come to meet you. Return to me, says the Lord, and I'll return to you, says the Lord Almighty. But you ask, instead of returning to me, you want to argue. Instead, you ask, how are we to return? Verse 7. How are we to return? What does it mean if I say, hey, get, let's get back to God. Let's renew your relationship with God. Your response will be, what does that look like, Pastor? How do I do that? That's what they're asking. How do we return? Watch God go on a rant now. Verse 8. Will a mere mortal rob God? Yet you have robbed me. But you ask, how have we robbed you? How are we robbing you? In tithes and offerings. You are under a curse. Your whole nation. Because you are robbing me. Now I just want to pause there. I'd like to do a social experiment, but I don't have the power to do it. America's economy is in the toilet. Uh, your portfolio is in the toilet. Your bacon, eggs, and bread are through the roof. Your gas is through the roof. And if they don't get it turned around, it's going to be a deep recession next year. And you all know that. Interest rates are rising. Housing sales are slowing, which is good for those for you about to buy. It's bad for those of you about to sell. I wish I could do a social experiment and ask every household in America to start tithing this week. You say, but gas is up. And Yes, I know. I'd like to try a social experiment and have the families of America go to their local community churches this week. Whatever brand they are, I don't care. Every house of God in America that's in your name, go to your local community church as you have done this morning and give tithes and offerings to the Lord and say, God, we honor you with the very best of our lives. Please bless our country and bless our families. I've got a wild idea that God would turn the tide on a country lickety-split because he does it with individual families right now. Wouldn't it be wild for a state full of Christians to try a social experiment and say the rest of the United States seems to be in the toilet, but our economy seems to be flourishing down here in Texas? How do you explain that? Oh, we can explain it. We can explain it. We're honoring God with our incomes. God's honoring our communities. God's honoring our cities. And God's honoring our GDP of our state. Your state has a GDP of... It's like the top ten countries in the world. Just your state. God is blessing if God's people are doing the right thing. Will a man rob God? You say, how could we? This is a hold up, God. How have we robbed you? Ha, ha, ha. God said, well, here's how you did it. You haven't given your tithes and offerings for years. Now, I don't want to put too much pressure on you because y'all get, y'all, everybody gets uncomfortable when the pastor starts talking about money. But how can you be blessed long-term if you want to honor God with your income? Um, in every church I have ever known growing up, the majority of the members of the church didn't tithe. A small group in the church always carried the load. In every, not saying our church, I'm saying every church in the world. That's crazy that God's people won't share the burden for the upkeep of the ministry of God. Don't let God say about 
you are cursed with a curse, and you and your children cannot thrive because of it. Why? Because you've robbed God. How have we robbed God? Because you have not given God the honor that is due Him. Now, their tithe and yours is a little different. We can talk more about that. But the principle remains nonetheless. Watch what God says. Verse 10, bring the tithes into the storehouse that there will be food in my house. Test me in this, says the Lord. Go ahead, I'm not, test me in this, says the Lord. And see if I will not throw open the floodgates of heaven and I will pour out so much blessing that there will not be room enough to store it. And I will prevent pests from devouring your crops. Now I've just got a wild theory here. I'd like to do a social experiment, but I don't have the power to do it. I'd like to see what a nation filled with God-honoring people, what effects that would have on COVID or flu or anything else. I, I would just like to do a social, I'm powerless to do it. It'll never be done. It can't be done. There's no way it can be done. But it's just a curious thing to think about, isn't it? If a people group honored God in a certain way, how would God respond in a national way? It's just a very interesting thing. Verse 11, I will prevent pests from devouring your crops and the vines in your fields will not drop their fruit before it is ripe, says the Lord. Then all the nations will call you blessed for yours will be a delightful land, says the Lord Almighty. Now, Here's what I know. We want God to show his love to us with tangible actions, right? We don't want to just hear words. We want to see God do stuff for us, right? That's how we know God loves us. Well, what it, isn't it interesting? Because it appears that God wants the same in return. God doesn't want you to say, I love God. God wants you to show God you love God. He wants to see that love expressed through tangible actions and the most tangible way to show God your devotion is through the matter of giving support to the upkeep of God's house and his ministry. It always has been and it always will be. The most tangible way you can demonstrate that to God, your love to God, is through giving. The sixth dispute, here's the final dispute, it's pointless to serve God. That's the dispute they're about to have with God. It's, it just doesn't pay to serve you. I just talked about how it paid they don't see it. So they're like, it just doesn't pay to be a Christian. Malachi three thirteen. You've spoken arrogantly against me, says the Lord. Yet you ask, what have we said? What do we say? Verse 14. You've said, it is futile to serve the Lord, serve God. What do we gain by carrying out his requirements and going about like mourners before the Lord Almighty? But now we call the arrogant blessed. Certainly evildoers prosper. And even when they put God to the test, they get away with it. Then those who feared the Lord talked with each other, and they listened, and they heard, and a scroll of remembrance was written in his presence concerning those who feared the Lord and honored his name. And on that day when I act, says the Lord Almighty, they will be my treasured possession and I will spare them as a father has compassion and spares his son who serves him. And you will again see the distinction between the righteous and the wicked, between those who serve God and those who do not. Now let me unpack that for you very quickly. They said it doesn't pay to serve God. God says, listen, there is a scroll of remembrance being written 
and the names of the faithful are written in that scroll. And when God acts, those faithful people will see the difference between the righteous and the wicked, between those who serve God and those who do not serve God. Now, let me unpack it one more step. The Bible itself is a book of remembrance. We've been studying the Old Testament all year, all these characters. I've lived name after name, Ruth and Samuel and Samson and Gideon and Jephthah and Barak and Deborah. And we've just been through person after person, character after character. Is not the Bible itself a list of names of people, a scroll of remembrance, a book of remembrance? These are the people who walked by faith. These are the people who served God. These are the people who gave their lives for God. The Bible takes us back to the past and shows us the people who lived by faith and who trusted God. And the Bible inspires hope for the future that you will go and do likewise. Now here's the important thing I want to say to you. The relevant thing to you. God did not stop keeping records when the Old Testament was closed. Now, there's no more Bible to be written, but God didn't stop writing journal notes and chronicles just because you live in 2022 and about to be 2023. Records are still being kept. A scroll of remembrance is written for the faithful. That's what God is saying. Doesn't pay to serve God. Nobody cares. God says, no, I'm writing your names down. I am remembering your faithfulness. I I am chronicling. I'm keeping records. I have a journal. And I am writing this all down. Everything you do for the kingdom of God is being recorded. What you do in loving your neighbor. Remember in the New Testament, even if you give a glass of water in the name of Jesus, you will not lose your reward. Well, somebody's got to be making note of that stuff. In other words, God's saying, I'm remembering your faithfulness. If you ever sometimes feel, just doesn't pay to serve God. Look, the wicked are prospering. It's temporary, David told you. God says, when I act, you'll see the difference. You may not see it played out right this minute, but it's going to be played out. And those of you who have faithfully served God, your faithfulness, your names are written in God's journal. He's always thinking of you. Your labor is recorded. Your efforts are noted. Your acts of love and kindness will be witnessed by history. And now we close the book. We turn to chapter 4. There's a few verses and we're done with the Old Testament. And the last section, I guess the only way I know to sum it is, what about the future? What, what now? God will send his man to fix this mess. God will act. God is watching. God is recording. And so God says finally as he closes the Old Testament, those who honor God will be vindicated. Your names are being written down. Your works are being recorded. Let me just read a few verses. Malachi 4.1 Surely the day is coming and it will burn like a furnace. All the arrogant and every evildoer will be stubble. And the day that is coming will set them on fire, says the Lord Almighty. Not a root or a branch will be left. But for you who revere my name, that same bright shining burning sun that burns them up. But for you who revere my name, The sun of righteousness will rise with healing in its race. It's going to be a blessing to you when the kingdom of God comes. You will frolic like well-fed calves. Well, that was written to an agrarian society, and I bet our 
half the room doesn't even know how a well-fed calf frolics. But I want you to imagine in your mind a cartoon little baby cow in a big green pasture full of wonderful grass and daisies and butterflies. And that calf is so happy that he has this beautiful pasture to live in. He just munches food and chases butterflies and kicks up his heel and smiles all the time. That's what God's saying. You'll be like well-fed cartoon calves skipping through a green pasture chasing butterflies. Okay? You say, well, what will happen next? God will send a new Elijah. Now we're getting ready for the New Testament. Now we're getting ready for Christmas. God says, one more thing I need to tell you. I'm going to send Elijah. Well, Elijah died hundreds of years ago. God said, no, I'm going to send another Elijah. Malachi 4, 5. See, I will send the prophet Elijah to you before the great and dreadful day of the Lord comes. And this Elijah will turn the hearts of the people. Now, if you're going one way and you turn, that's the Bible word for repent, okay? God says, I'm going to send somebody, and they're going to call the people to turn to God. He's going to call the people to repentance, this Elijah that I'm going to send. So get ready for Elijah. Now, as the Old Testament, this is kind of the last word here, as the Old Testament closes, God's people are looking for Elijah to come. Next year, when we start preaching about Jesus, you're going to see people ask Jesus, are you Elijah? And you're like, what's that about? It's about these verses right here. The last word from Malachi was, be looking for Elijah to prepare the way for God's king to come. He'll be a character who will turn God's people in repentance back to God. Then everything goes quiet. For all of history, there have been voices speaking about the covenant. been prophets speaking for God. And it all goes quiet. 400 years of quiet. Now those 400 years are amazing from a secular history point of view. It won't be long, just a few years now, and Alexander the Great will march his army into the Middle East. Alexander of Macedon, Alexander the Great. And when he marches into the Middle East, the high priest of Israel will come out with the book of Daniel and say, we've been expecting you. One of our prophets said you would come. Alexander's generals and Alexander were so impressed that the Bible foretold his coming from the book of Daniel that Alexander said, I'll not destroy Jerusalem again. I'll bypass it and go on to Babylon and press all the way to India. Alexander conquered all the way to India, sent half his army home by ships, marched the other half across the desert back to Susa and then on to Babylon. Alexander thrived in Persia, adopted some Persian customs, Hellenized the whole world, turned the whole world Greek. That's how the Bible's written in Greek and how the disciples spoke Greek and how Paul spoke Greek and because of Alexander the Great's kingdom being spread across the world. God's using these movements in history the world's saying, where's God? God said, just give me a minute, okay? Just give me a minute. I got to get Alexander here. I got to get Caesar here. I got to move the pieces in place to get my plan done. So God moves Alexander the Great to, back to Babylon. 
he dies. And right before he dies, they say, to whom shall we give the kingdom? He said, give it to the strongest one. The four generals take his kingdom and divide it four ways. Cassander, uh, Seleucus, Ptolemy, uh, Antigonus, they divided the kingdom of Alexander four different ways. Now, it matters. These are the apocryphal books that are not in your Bible that talk about this history. Jesus knew them and all the apostles. They quote them in the New Testament. That's how well they knew them. The book of Jude says the Lord comes with 10,000. He's quoting the book of Enoch, which is not even in your Bible. It's It's an apocryphal book. All of this history is happening between Malachi and Jesus. Uh, Ptolemy goes south and this becomes the kingdom of Egypt. This will be Cleopatra's kingdom eventually. One goes west and eventually now Rome is going to rise. Julius Caesar comes on the scene. Becomes a worldwide phenomenon. The Roman government does not want Julius Caesar to be an emperor. Like all the other nations have been for all of history. Doesn't want another Alexander the Great. But Julius Caesar's army is so powerful and he's such a great general and the legions are loyal to him that he crosses the Rubicon, if you know the statement, and he marches his army south towards Rome, which was forbidden by law. As soon as he did it, it triggered a civil war and it became Julius Caesar versus Pompey the Great, the Roman general, and they fought for control of Rome. Julius Caesar chased Pompey to Greece He defeated his army, and Pompey escaped on a ship to Alexandria, Egypt. Julius Caesar chased Pompey the Great to Alexandria, Egypt, where Pompey was killed. While in Alexandria, Egypt, Julius Caesar fell in love. Anybody know her name? Cleopatra. She's a Ptolemy. She's one of the descendants of one of Alexander's generals, the Ptolemaic kingdom. Father's Caesarian, a son with Cleopatra, He takes Cleopatra back to Rome as another queen to unify an empire. The Roman Senate does not want an emperor, so they reject Cleopatra. She goes sulking back to Egypt with her newborn son, Caesarian, and the Roman Senate says, we got to get rid of this guy before he turns us into another Alexander the Great, Darius the Great, Xerxes the Great, it just Nebuchadnezzar the Great. We don't want that. The Senate wants control. So the senators all decided to bring knives to the next session of Senate. You know the story? And on the Ides of March, all of the senators rushed Julius Caesar and stabbed him to death on the Senate floor to prevent him from being the king of the world. And what they did was ensure that Julius Caesar's son would be the king of the world. The very thing they tried to stop, they could not stop. So Caesar's will was read, and in his will, he named his nephew, Augustus, as his son, as his legal heir. And uh, he became Caesar Augustus. And he made emperor, and he unified it as an empire, everything the Senate didn't want. You say, why do I care about all of this? Because God's saying, give me time. You're saying, God, fix this mess. God said, I am. So when you open your New Testament, you know what you read? And it came to pass in the days of Caesar Augustus that a decree went out that all the world should be taxed, everyone into his own city. And so Joseph took Mary too, because of they were of the house and lineage of David. God said, 
I've got all the players on the stage now. I've got all the countries where I want them now. And now I can do the biggest thing that I have ever done. You say, how do you know? Let me just read you a passage. In the time of Herod, king of Judea, there was a priest named Zechariah who belonged to a priestly division. This is how the New Testament opens. And you know what God's going to say to Zechariah? You're going to have a son. Call his name John. He's Elijah. You say, how do you know he's Elijah, pastor? Up in the booth, follow me real quick. Matthew 11:10. This is the one about whom it is written, Jesus says, I will send my messenger ahead of you to prepare the way before you. Truly, I tell you, among those born of women, there has not risen a greater than John the Baptist. Yet whoever is least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he from the days of John the Baptist until now. Let me tell you what the last history has been about. Alexander, the four generals, Xerxes, Rome, Julius Caesar, Cleopatra, Mark Antony, Herod the Great, Pontius Pilate. Let me tell you what the story has been. The kingdom of heaven has been subjected to violence and violent people have been raiding it. For all the prophets and all the law, the Old Testament, prophesied until John the Baptist. And if you are willing to accept it, he is the Elijah who was to come. Let me give it to you one other way. When John the Baptist stepped on the scene, you know what his message was? Repent. Turn back to God. So I just want to say this to you this morning. Sometimes you and I feel like God's forgotten His promises. Sometimes we feel like God's forgotten us. I want you to know there is a book of remembrance and you are written in that book. You are always before God's memory. He has never forgotten you. He is always watching you. And if He's made a promise, He will deliver the promise He has made to you. If you want to live your best life, if you want to prosper, if you want to be blessed, you get into a covenant relationship with God and be faithful to serve God. Honor God with the best of your life and engage in the mission of making disciples. There is no better life to live than that life. That is the sweet spot of human living. Our heads are bowed and our eyes are closed. I'm going to ask you to stand to your feet. I'm sorry I've gone a little bit long this morning. Let's don't rush so quickly out of here, though, that we can't in our hearts respond to what God's saying to us. For a moment, just let it be about you. Close your eyes. Look in tide to your heart and to your mind. Let, let me just speak to you for a moment. Be honest. Do you ever feel like God doesn't love you? He does love you. And His actions prove He loves you. Do you ever feel like life's not fair? Do you ever feel like, well, there's just no justice? I watch the news and I see the scandals and I see what happens in politics and I see what happens in the world. There's just no justice. It'll never get fixed. God's message to you this morning is it will get fixed because I have sent the fixer. And Jesus Christ is working it out right now. The kingdom of God is growing and as it expands, it's changing hearts. It's changing attitudes. It's changing human rights. It's changing the world you live in. 
Christian, maybe you've been saved for a while and you've begun to think somewhere along the way, you know what, it's just a waste of time to serve God. It doesn't matter. It does matter. A book of remembrance is written for those who faithfully serve God. Is your name in that book? If you have questions about that, let me say to you, don't have a question after this morning. Find a place on your knees and say, God, I want to be one of your faithful. I want to be sure my name's in the book of remembrance of those who gave you their very best. As the Old Testament closes, the message is this, return to the Lord. How shall we return to the Lord, the people said. Give. Give your best. Give your wealth. Give your heart. Give your time. Make God number one. A dispute came up. God said, it really hurts me that marriages are in the shape they're in. You've dishonored your commitments to one another, and it hurts me, and it hurts the community. This might be a great moment this morning to kneel with your spouse and just say to God, God, we want to honor you in our marriage. You don't have to be having trouble in your marriage to rededicate your marriage. Husband and wives come together and say, listen, we want to pattern something for our family. Maybe you don't have kids here in the community, some of you middle-aged folks. Listen, I'd love for you to pattern a good marriage for our teenagers, for our grandkids, for kids that are not even your kids. It matters. There's a lot of things God might be saying to your heart this morning. I'm going to ask you to spend a moment with him in prayer. Whether you do it right there at your seat or whether you do it here at an altar, just find what the Holy Spirit's speaking to you about this morning and action that thing with God in conversation right now. I have feelings I can't explain. I have to talk them out with somebody. I have to talk them out with God. Maybe you have your own dispute with God this morning. It's okay if you talk it out. Tell him how you feel. But know that he has feelings too. And he'll tell you how he feels. And then you guys figure out how to resolve it. Maybe giving God your best means making a commitment of of membership. Next week you can have an opportunity to get on that path. Whatever God's speaking to your heart about this morning, I want you to action it with Him right now in prayer. If you're here without Christ this morning, some of our deacons are right here to help you. If you want to know how to be saved, you can come right now or you can come after the service and just ask them to pray with you and they gladly will show you how to follow the Lord Father your people are bowed before you with humble hearts Lord whenever we preach from one of these prophets with such a strong message Lord it's convicting it's convicting about how we handle our resources 
It's convicting about how we treat our spouses and our children. Lord, it's convicting because you're dealing this morning with attitudes that sometimes nobody can see them, but we know they're in there. Lord, could I just, for the whole congregation, confess our sin this morning of not trusting you the way we should? God, I want to just confess our sin of sometimes getting frustrated and discouraged and saying there is no benefit to serving God. God, we know that's not true. We know that's not true, and we repent of that. God, we repent when we feel like you don't love us. We know you love us. You've proven it. You loved us all the way to the cross and all the way out through the resurrection and even to this very hour. You are sustaining us. You are blessing us. God, forgive us for ever doubting that. Lord, sometimes we get discouraged and depressed and we take it out on you. In the same way, sometimes we get frustrated and we take it out on our spouse, the ones we love the most, or we take it out on our kids. And we know we're wrong when we do that, but sometimes we don't know how to stop ourselves. So God, this morning we repent of that as sin and we ask that your Holy Spirit would help make the changes in our lives that we could change our behavior. God, our prayer this morning is that you would bring our attitudes in line with the truth, the reality of the way things are. Lord, I pray that you would bless this congregation. You said if we would come to you and cry out and ask for forgiveness, then all would be forgiven. And our sins would be remembered no more and you would turn and bless us. Lord, open the windows of heaven and pour a blessing out upon the people of this church. Lord, we love you. We thank you for the words of Malachi and our hearts are ready for Christmas now. Thank you for keeping your promises. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.